Con Radio, presented by Wizard World. Radio for geeks. Nineteen forty-nine, New York City. Detective Drake Harper hunts down the serial killer known as the Vulture while battling his own personal demons. Black of Heart, the graphic novel written by Chris Charlton, illustrated by David Hollenbach. Back this project now on Kickstarter, running until July 1st. You're listening to the Canned Air Podcast, your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Candair, a tribute to comics and pop culture right here on Wizard World's Con Radio. I am Jeremy Colley. And I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Jake Runyon. And happy 4th of July weekend to everybody. Uh, any big plans for the 4th, you guys? I am going to get very drunk, Jeremy. Hey. Thank you for asking. Hey, hey. I, I didn't see that coming. I know, right? Out <laughs> of left field. Jack? I'm going to have some... Barbecue time with the family, I think. Uh, there, you're, there you go. You can't go wrong with barbecue and fork. And I'll be a lot of yelling at the dog while fireworks are going off because the rednecks <laughs> next door are just popping stuff left and right. Oh, yeah. Hiding under the bed. And, Traditions. Uh, oh, he wants to get him. He sits there and... Oh, and he, really? Oh, yeah. He's not afraid of him. Oh, wow. Well, he's never really seen him. He just hears him and chases after him in the backyard. But yeah. <laughs> I used to have a friend that would get scared by fireworks. I really did. They'd, oh, they'd go off and he'd say, guys, I think uh, you know, maybe we should get going. Anyway, <laughs> he's dead now. So <laughs> My cousin was definitely afraid of sparklers Well, we were kids, but me and my sister would be like, woo, sparklers. And really? she would, just to hold it in her hand, just... Oh, she just hated them. It's your fault. You kept burning it, man. <laughs> like I said earlier, we have a very special episode for you. Uh, our guest today uh, was in Surrogates, Blue Ruin, Nebraska, uh, the upcoming HBO project Mosaic. Uh, I think it was in February he said it was going to be coming out. I think so, yeah. Something next like year. That's incredible. Yeah. But he's probably best known for his portrayal as Buzz McAllister in Home Alone 1 and 2. We were joined by Devin Retray this week. And my God, what a lot of fun he was to talk to. Right, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. It was a real treat. Dude's yeah. a badass. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the best interviews I think we've done thus far. Absolutely. Not that we had anything to do with it. It was all <laughs> definitely all him. The amount of energy he brought to the table was... was a hell of a storyteller. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was at the edge of my seat. <laughs> but, uh, yeah... I don't know how else to build it up other than just to give it to you guys. So, without any further ado, here's our interview with Devin Retray. Hello. Hey, man. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. It's been a long time coming. I'm excited uh, we finally get to do this. Uh, yeah, it's like I was trying to think of some uh, ridiculous... Thank you very much. appreciate that. Thank you. Trying to think of some ridiculous excuse to like to tell you at the last minute, just to make it more hilarious. Like I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on, I'm on, I'm, I'm on the cyclone right now in Coney Island. <laughs> Can I call you back in 46 seconds? Oh, like, we'll, drop my phone. We'll put up with the gusts of wind on the phone. We're just going to go through yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear you um, scream. Right. <laughs> Is there more than one person here, or is it just you, Jeremy? Yeah, no, it's uh, Jack Doherty's here with me as well. Good afternoon. 
Hi, Jeff. How are you? Jack. No, I think it's pronounced uh, Devin, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also uh, joined by uh, Jake Runyon. Hi, how are you doing? Okay, Jake, Jack, Jeff, and Jeremy. Uh, Jeff's long gone, but yeah, yeah, the other three are still here. <laughs> Jeff's gone. Oh. I'll put you on speaker real quick because I'm also here with my friend Ann, but you can call her Jeff. Okay. So Hi. Jeff is there then. Sweet. <laughs> How are you doing, Jeff? Here. Were you able to hear anything? No, I wasn't able to either. I'm going to take you off speakerphone because uh, we couldn't hear you at all. And that okay. was really, and that was loud. But she said something about, like, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's go to the cyclone and get off the phone right now. <laughs> this is going to be fun. I like this guy. <laughs> yeah. All right, We're man. at a street fair in New York City on Amsterdam Avenue. And I said, we have, I'm sorry, Ann, but I, we have to duck into a bar uh, someplace because I have this interview to do. And, uh, you know, Ann said something really rude and obnoxious, but then she went along with it eventually. Yeah. And uh, so now this is the quietest bar we can find, but is the noise too loud for you? No, we, we can hear you perfectly. Yeah. Seems fine, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Sounds they good. Have the Mets game, they have the Mets game playing in the background, so. Obviously, you're going to hear a lot of white trash. <laughs> Hopefully, they won't do too well, so it'll stay quiet. <laughs> Unfortunately, they've been doing tremendously lately. Not today. But I am from New York. Wow, man, that's awesome. He's taking time out of his uh, leisure. He's taking time out of his leisure time to talk to Candare. How prestigious is that? That's awesome. Upstanding yeah, you know, for, for you guys, yes. Wait, what is the story again? No, of course, I kid. I kid, I jest, I kid. Nobody reads anyway. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I get the podcasts in Braille a lot often. Oh, look at this guy. (laughs) He's quick. No, I kid, I kid. I love canned air. Oh, look at that right there. That's a promo right there. (laughs) I was going to ask you for one, but we already got it. Awesome. I wake up every afternoon to canned air, (laughs) my favorite podcast. Brought to you live between 1.30 and 3.15 in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to use that. We laugh, but I'm using that. No. <laughs> uh, okay. Right. Well, well, man, again, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us. That's really cool of you to do. But uh, before we delve too much into your uh, acting career, I found out that you were a musician and researching for this. That was awesome to hear. Uh, you had a band called Little Bill and the Beckleys. You guys still play? Little Bill and the Beckleys, Little Bill kind of, he kind of departed from the the planet. Little Bill left us Beckleys behind. Um, that is to say the band broke up with me. And, oh. uh, <laughs> well, I formed a band with Jim and we, uh, well, my, my partner, uh, Jim, and we um, dissipated uh, into me uh, doing more movies and stuff like that and them deciding not to wait for me to not show up to band rehearsal. Right. So they formed uh, Toys in Trouble, and uh, they still play, and I still stand at the back of the uh, concerts and, and throw things at them. <laughs> uh, oh, you think that's a, you think that's a guitar solo? Uh, I mean, I'm not bitter or anything. I just, you know, I'm honest. Right. Um, that band, uh, Little Bill, was uh, was a fantastic. Was that was a great experience. We got to play uh, all the clubs uh, that are no longer in existence down in the Bowery and the sort of the, the last gasps of the heyday of New York 
New York uh, punk punk scene, punk life. We played CBGBs in their last last months. Wow. Uh, that was what I was going to yeah. ask you about if you if it was the original or their new location. Mm. So it was in oh, fact no, the original. The, the, the original. The original. Um, my father came to uh, one of the shows, and my father's a um, you know been a New Yorker for over half a century, and he walked in. And he I just sort of saw his eyes kind of glaze over, and him like looking up and around, like sort of flashes of of a lifetime long, long ago, memories past just sort of come rushing back to him. Right. And he was a, a younger man walking into this place. And he was like, I haven't been here in so long, Devin. And I'm on the stage at this point, and he's helping me lift my gear up. He says, Devin, I want you at some point to lie down on the stage. And I didn't know what he was talking about, so I just sort of, so I just laid down on the stage. He's like, "Oh, well, you can do it now if you want." Uh, like, like I took him literally, and I laid down. I'm like, "Why?" He's like, "Well, uh, David Bowie sweat on that stage in there, and Iggy Pop has his sweat in there, and and Debbie Harry, boy, I think she she has her urine in there somewhere. <laughs> Roll around in it, son. <laughs> yeah." So I laid in there for a little bit longer, you know, just sort of, yeah, rolling around on the on the stage. But he was, you know, this is the same floorboards that you know that that David Byrne stomped on, and and they hadn't changed it. They hadn't changed any of them, uh, which is unfortunate because our bass player kept on tripping on where he was standing. There was like a loose board, and he kept on tripping on it. But that was a, uh, you know, we were there before like they closed everything down. Like you know, we we saw that we we. I used the famous toilet down there in the men's room. That's amazing. It had to be surreal. Mm. Uh, it was more, I mean, I was the one who, like, out of the bands who knew about it more than the other guys um, in the sense of, like, and I, and I, we all knew that it was coming to a close after a while, but actually walking through it and seeing it and, you know, just jumping on the same stage that, you know, that, television and you know all these other bands had had started doing it you know right it was fantastic it was great and now it's all gone i <laughs> know it's a shame it, i uh, can't no, believe it is dead. why did we're, they we're do now, that do you know why they uh, tore it down yes i know exactly why um because they got caught out they were losing their lease and a uh, a korean real estate um company uh that doesn't Move, they they just buy stuff up uh, was able to come in and, and buy it and they put up a little uh, it was like an art gallery for a little bit and now it's just uh, now they're a bunch of uh, high rent uh, apartments you know drywall apartments that you can hear the other neighbors flushing their toilets and next door <laughs> shame and the, yeah. a piece of history like. or these cheap yeah. apartments are <laughs> is where you know people like John oh Robin yeah no no play. I said I, I said I said drywall but they are cheap only in the manufacturing. They are in no stretch of the imagination cheap in terms of price. Oh, I'm uh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially like on the sacred hallowed grounds, CBGBs. You'll get, you know, the studios, I think we're starting at 1.2 million, and that was 12 years ago when the place closed down. Wow. So it's more than that now. <laughs> no, New York, I've got a lot of opinions about New York. Uh, I know this is exactly what you wanted to hear about, but... We, you know, we've always been a city built on money. I mean, that's why we were, you know, and we, the whole city was, you know, bought cheap, you know, like bought in a swindle, 
uh, for 28 bucks and 16 uh, chests full of trinkets. Uh, and we have continued to be a city of swindlers, and uh, it's real estate. It's always been real estate. A proud I mean, tradition. Hamilton, for gosh sakes. You know, Hamilton, you know, he uh, he started the uh, started the, our, the National Bank right here in New York City. Um, we also have the same birthday, by the way, Alexander Hamilton and I. Hey, hey. Both January 11th, just want to say. Both born in 1770-whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a date of greatness. <laughs> yes. And, boy, I just dated myself there. <laughs> 200, 250 years old. Oh, anyway. You look good for your age. And he's still out Thank of the bar. You. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much. People say I look like I'm in my 30s. Like a shot out, burnt out alcoholic 30s, but they say I look like I'm in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, this is great. It's not true. It's not true. Just because I'm having a Bloody Mary here on Sunday brunch doesn't mean anything. That sounds amazing. Vicious. I wish we were interviewing you there, where you're at. That sounds awesome. You should be. You should be here, actually, because um, first of all, looking across over at Anne and her gorgeous red curly hair is really nice. But then beyond her, the smells and the sounds of the street fair and all these uh, fake up a West Sider transplants who pretend to know my city, uh, (laughs) walking around, paying $5 for a fried Twinkie. And you know what? I got to say, we're the guilty ones. I just made Anne do that. Well, I just made her taste it. We just bought a five dollar fried Twinkie. That's the American wow. dream, right? Yeah. I'm kind of cor- yeah, I'm kind of coursing on the sugar spike from that right now. <laughs> I'll probably be asleep in about two minutes. My teeth are chattering, and I'm not even eating it. It's like sounds so sweet. <laughs> Secondhand my, sugar. My teeth are slowly dissolving in all the sugar that I just had with one of those. You cannot top a Twinkie when it comes to uh, sweets, though. At least in my yes, book. Yes, you can. It's about yes, oh. you can. If you deep fry it and sell it for five bucks. <laughs> the gold standard for junk food. <laughs> I filled my quota standard. today for learning something. Perfect. Deep fry my Twinkies from here on out. You're not doing it right. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but, then they put on, but then they put on that, that confectionery sugar on top of it. Oh, man. Just to make sure that everybody knows you made a poor life decision. <laughs> your, your shirt is, like, covered. And like either, like either you have a severe cocaine problem or you just bought a horrible piece of fried processed food that has no name except a made-up name. Like if you eat any food where they have to make up a name for it, like what's a Cheeto? Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> Gives don't, no indication as to what it is. It's it's you're absolutely right though that last uh, like dar- garnish of uh, powdered sugar on top of that uh, oh, that deep fried Twinkie is just like this powdered sugar is the least of your problems at this you point. You should be able to turn in the it receipt is. for it's a T-shirt just, that says "I survived." I don't know. It's just sort of like the insult. It's the last insult onto this. It's just like it's just the vendor saying to you. I really don't want you to live until 60. <laughs> People like, eating and getting really, sad realizations. I really crying. hope that, that perhaps you have a diabetic, like, like you just fall down in a diabetic shaking coma right here on the street. <laughs> he just sits there counting his money while it happens. Yeah. There goes yeah. another one. You get one every day. Yes. This little Guatemalan lady looked at me and she said, you just paid me $5 for diabetes. <laughs> and I thank process her process is so streamlined now Thank you yeah. for your honesty Yes. <laughs> thank you very much Thank you For, my, awesome. for my 
spiking blood sugar numbers. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to hit 300 today. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to have goals, you know. Something yeah, to keep right. you going. Right. Of course, the first thing I do is I try and stuff it in Ann's face. I'm like, here, put this in your face bowl. I don't want to eat it. <laughs> oh, man, and she that's said, yes. <laughs> well, oh, I, I think I covered all the bases. It's been really good talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Solid interview, everybody. Yeah, well, well, hey, we got to touch this on one that. out of the park. Yeah, we, we got to touch on the acting a little bit here, Devin. Then we'll get back to the Twinkies. But um, <laughs> I want to touch on the acting. You you started acting in what eighty six was it? Uh, it was nineteen eighty three uh, when I first started. And how did you get uh, your start? Well, how did I get my start? Yeah, how did you first get into the world of acting? Uh, my parents are both actors. Really? My parents are both. Yeah, my parents are both. Uh, New York theater and television actors. Uh, they met in New York in Summerstock in 1963 uh, and were married in 66 and then moved to California and uh, to, you know, become famous movie and television stars. And my dad was on his way doing that. We had my, they had my brother in 72. And then uh, my father got a, uh, a leading role in a soap opera, uh, Ryan's Hope where he played Dan, bad guy Dan Fox. Ooh. I mean, that's for all the people who, you know, love watching 1970s soap operas that nobody's heard of. There's a huge market for that. Right. Uh, but uh, he got that role uh, right when Mom said, oh, great, I'm pregnant. And uh, six months after I was born in uh, the beautiful hills of Hollywood, Los Angeles, California, uh in a four-story castle, like it was, it was built after a Moroccan castle, but it was a house that was on the, built into the Hollywood Hills. Oh wow! My dad, yeah, we like had backyards with you know coyotes that would come visit my little brother, and <laughs> uh, it was. <laughs> my mom was doing the dishes once, and she she heard Luke was a very friendly little four-year-old. He would talk to birds and stuff in the backyard, and she. Heard him saying, hi there, little fella. Hi there, little guy. Come on over here. And she's uh -oh. like, oh, Luke's talking to him. She looked over. She said, that's a big-looking puppy. <laughs> and then she saw this just drooling coyote like, oh, I'm going to so enjoy this. I've never had four-year-olds before. <laughs> and, oh, my God. Yeah, and he's just sort of creeping closer as Luke's standing there with his hand out. And Mom instantly came rushing out. I mean, because California coyotes, they're... No, they're gnarly, but they're also arrogant. I mean, I mean, they're they're entitled wildling creatures. They're entitled. They're like that is mine. You know, they steal cats and dogs and whatever. So, oh my, my mom had to had to broomstick away a coyote uh, from Luke. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, I'm sorry, it's a Bloody Mary. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm enjoying it. It's a pretty good one, yeah. But the point of the story is that little Bill in the Beckley's performed at the Elbow Room once. No, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they, my father said, honey, pack up the one-and-a-half kids that you got. We're moving out of this four-story, beautiful Moroccan castle-esque place to the far, far Upper West Side, which was called Harlem back in 1977 of New York City during a garbage strike. And it's going to be one day before the blackout of 77. Wow. Perfect we didn't know. Yeah, they didn't know it was going to be the blackout. 
Uh, we don't want to miss this blackout. We got to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, come on. This is like a once in a 30 year experience. Right. <laughs> Historical opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom proceeded to, once we got to New York, have a, have a minor mental breakdown uh, trying to deal with. I was six months old. So I was, you know, requiring an awful lot of attention from my mom and complaining about the air quality and complaining about the housing and, you know, the fashion statements of the place were so dark. I mean, California was light and airy. Right. I didn't like any of that. Luke was four. He was, you know, this is a whole big deal for him. And we moved to this, uh, this apartment on 104th Street where nobody lived in 1977. Certainly not my lily white parents and mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> There were just, you know, Guatemalans trying to give us fried Twinkies. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> um, but then, seriously, uh, less than a day or two after we got there, I think it might have been even a day. Um, I'll have to check my diary. I was six months old. <laughs> um, my handwriting sucks. Still very uh, precocious. To get yeah. a diary. It no. still smells like garbage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Still tired from the move. <laughs> That's actually from the womb is what I meant, but, you know, also, <laughs> <Of course>. uh, <laughs> um, so there was the blackout that happened literally, I, within two days of us moving, uh, and the, the movers had to sleep in the truck, the moving truck downstairs, because um, because of looters. Uh, people, I mean, riders, there was like, there was looting, there were smashed windows, there was Molotov cocktails going off. Like, it was, it was a lot different from the blackout of 68, where people were lighting candles and walking through the streets. My parents were there for that, singing wow. freaking Kumbaya. And by 77, <laughs> the city was in such a different state, and it had gotten so bad. Uh, we had been de declared bankrupt. Like, New York City was bankrupt, which is tough to think about nowadays. Right. Uh, but it was, like, it was a it was a totally different era. And especially up around 104th Street, it was officially called Harlem. Then now, now it's called Morningside Heights. Oh, that's much nicer. Yeah. 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 Homing <laughs> effect, a name like right. that has. It's like huh? a spa name or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are in the Manhattan Valley, technically. But there is an area that we are in called Morningside Heights. We are we've always been in the Manhattan Valley. We're at the we're you know, at the top of the hill. That's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story is uh, little Bill and Beckley's once played a place called the Bankfell <laughs> Inn. and it was it was like it was a pretty dangerous place and uh, my mom just had a complete flip out. And of course my father had uh, insight, and uh, they still now live in an eight-room apartment, 14-foot ceilings, uh, on the 10th floor of a building on 104th. Oh, and wow. yeah, it, the whole building is, is gone co-op, except for my parents' rent-stabilized place, where they pay less than half of what I pay for my incredible huge, spacious, one-bedroom bathroom. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a bathroom with a bed in it, so it's called a one-bed bath. Wow. <laughs> they, pay, I, they pay less than half of what I pay, and my rent is going up in September, and they're still there. And uh, the rest of the building, the apartments on their line uh, of the building, 
uh, start at three point four million. Three point four million, and I'm not talking lira. <laughs> that means we can only get two. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> wow, that's a fair chunk of change. Yeah. For living space. My yeah. God. Yeah. So that answers your question of when I started acting. Wow. Okay, I gotta go, guys. I'll see you later. <laughs> um. So my parent. Okay. So my parents got the apartment from playwright David Mamet. Excuse me, not David Mamet. The other David. Come on, guys. I'm, I'm drawing a blank I'm, here. I don't know. I'm at a loss. I freaking worked for him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you, David Rabe. Excuse me. I'm sorry. David Rabe. Uh, it's that Bloody Mary and that Twinkie fight. I know. I'm craving one of each <laughs> now. a vicious combination. I want some Twinkies and Bloody Mary in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a Bloody Mary and a fried Twinkie in front of you, how happy would you be right now? Oh, uh, beyond happy. Uh, my happiness it. could not be contained on You'd the microphone. You'd actually be dead, I think. That would be the end. <laughs> dead with a smile on my face, though. <laughs> At least he I died just, doing what he loved. <laughs> I just sold you a coronary and a 12-step program. <laughs> How's that for a bargain? For the low, low price of $5. <laughs> for the low, low price. And the Bloody Mary was 5 bucks too. Oh, hey. I'm telling you, some of the best deals in New York have been for five bucks. The best deals I've ever gotten for, for five bucks. I bought a guitar case, a beautiful hardwood guitar case from a homeless guy for five dollars in 1994. Man. Some of the best. Uh, yeah, he was just selling it. Um, you know, there was some guy with a guitar running after him, yelling at him, but I bought it real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I was say the homeless people here don't sell cool stuff. No. They just want they want your stuff. Yeah, they're usually asking, <laughs> yeah. not selling. It's a very different dynamic. It really is. <laughs> there, there is a there is a there is a subculture of semi homeless. Like you, you, they're not homeless, but they don't really have residence, and um, they are the true movers and shakers of the city. They, or at least of the Upper West Side, they are the dealers and and the connectors, and they have all the books that you threw out from your last move. They have all the, the CDs and records that you thought you got rid of, and they sell on the streets. And you can really find some, like a good lamp or something, and it'll be for five bucks. Still to this day, twenty twenty years later, it'll be five bucks for a green oh. lamp or a guitar case or or something. And so that's how I got started in acting. <laughs> so then this homeless uh, guy said let's see what you got <laughs> yeah this homeless guy said you know i know an eight-room apartment on the 10th floor <laughs> come on up don't tell anybody come on up. <laughs> five dollars a month there's this used uh, there's this has-been playwright who's getting rid of it <laughs> david rabe uh was married to uh, uh sorry tony award-winning playwright david rabe married to joe Clayburgh. Uh, they were uh, they were going to move out of this apartment because they said it's far too big and they are never having children. By the way, Lily Rabe is uh, owning earning uh, Emmy Award nominations on American Horror Story these days. Oh, Their wow. daughter, <laughs> oh, Lily wow. Rabe, who also was nominated for Tonys on on uh, Broadway as well. But of course, they were never having kids back then. Right. Uh, <laughs> So the She's an elaborate hallucination, is what it is. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so uh, my father and David uh, shared it with the same agent and said, "Hey, why don't you why don't you check this place out?" My father walked in, said, "This is perfect. It's great." 
was still there to this day. Uh, my parents both being actors, we knew a casting lady who lived on the sixth floor of our building, and she said, I'm casting a, a USA Today commercial, and we need, uh, you know, really talented, intelligent, um, gregarious, adorable, philanthropist-like sort of six-year-old. Don't um, forget modest. <laughs> my humble, humble, modest, uh, you know, totally undeserving, but I'll take it if it comes along kind of guy. And my parents said, nope, we don't know anybody. And they said, well, can Devon audition instead? They said, fine. So uh, I auditioned for that. That was my first job at six. And then I went straight on to do uh, this children's game show called Child's Play. What was it called? Child what? Child's Play. Oh, no. Children go on. Yeah, children are videotaped giving uh, definitions to work. Oh, I guess the Mets just scored a hit. Sorry, did you hear that in the background? Yeah, I'm sure so did. I, Made somebody yeah, stay. They're, they're like, finally, finally, we did something. Uh, yeah, this is a stupid game show in 1983 where kids are videotaped giving the definitions of words, and then adult contestants have to guess the definitions of them. It was a wild TV show that was, you know, banned for, you know, lascivious nature uh, <laughs> back in the 83. And then I did my first film in 84 when I was seven. So okay. I started when I was six, and, I, and I've been working ever since. Wow. That's amazing. And awesome movies you've been in uh, since then, like R.I.P.D. Uh, remember Little Monsters, you guys? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wolfman's got nards. <laughs> yeah. you, you guys remember Little Monsters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's our era. For sure. I think... Who put piss in my apple juice? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've, I have had quite a string of, uh, of memorable one-liners in my childhood career. But I really do think Who Put This in My Apple Juice is one of the more underrated ones I've ever had. <laughs> I can agree with you there. It, it needs to be uh, brought out front. Oh, it make yeah. a fine we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put it on T-shirts. It'll be the next Candare T-shirt. <laughs> okay. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry, I just ordered another Bloody Mary. I didn't hear anything of what you just said. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's all right. No problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it's just, a, it's just an interview. Right. The waitress was literally saying to me, I might not be able to get enough Bloody Mary. Oh, And oh. That, that instantly took all of my attention. <laughs> oh, man. Like it drained any attention that I had in this phone conversation and redirected it into her eyes. And I was burning my whole my eyes into her soul, saying, what are you saying? She said, I might not be able to get you one, but I'll ask the bartender. <laughs> oh, wait, here's the answer. Here's the answer. I'm at the edge of my seat. Oh, my God. How much is that? It's $7.81 instead of $5. What? Guys, what do you think? Should I get it? Ooh. Uh, you know what? You've come this far. Pull the trigger. Yeah, go for it. They're saying pull the trigger. Yeah, they're saying do it. Do it. Do it. They're saying do it. I'm going to do it. I'm One or two. Oh, no, you definitely want two. <laughs> Just got to drink something, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the waitress is like, I like how you have to ask your friends on the phone. <laughs> hey, we're friends. He's like, oh, oh, yeah. oh. Yeah, joke, they're not, not friends. Her. I'm like, these guys are not my friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jokes man. on her. 
Well, I say we give a quick round of applause for the Bloody Mary oh, that sure. is now yeah. right oh, to the table. Right. Yes, yes. Crisis averted. Go. Yes, like, yes. You know what? I'm going to announce it. I'm going to put you guys on speaker when she comes back. Okay. She's going to come back with two really good Bloody Marys. They're pretty good, right? Anne agrees. She does say that they are no, they are no, well, there's a place on the Upper West Side called Henry's. Those are the best Bloody Marys that you can get on Saturday. On Saturdays, they're five dollars. They're amazing. On Sunday, they're thirteen dollars. <laughs> oh boy! And that's how I got started in the acting business. <laughs> <laughs> great talking to you guys. I gotta go. <laughs> I've got to make it to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, gotta get these fried Twinkies before they close. Right, right. <laughs> you were mentioning some of my greater achievements, like the worst reviewed movie of 2013, R.I.P.D. Oh. Or the or the barely released but now sort of uh, cult classic Little Monsters. Then oh, I yeah. want to see what else you can dig up. Like if you oh, guys okay. really have, <laughs> well, have like, so all the all the stuff that I, I didn't write them all down. But... Oh wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Okay, here we go. She's here, guys. She's here, guys, with the Bloody Mary. Hello. Hello. Hey. Thank you How for bringing you? the Bloody Mary. You're doing important You're so work awesome. right now. I think they really deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great service right now. Oh my god, really? Who's listening? The world's listening, dear. She just said hello from New York. There you go. Back off speaker, but you you just got her saying hello to you guys. There's an official New York endorsement. Yeah, Yeah. that was a New York endorsement. Yeah, she actually knew exactly who you were. Oh yeah, I'm sure she did. She said, "Yeah, I clean I clean my computer with them all the time." Yeah. <laughs> I've got the market corner. <laughs> um, no, a few other movies though. Uh, Surrogates. Uh, that was a great movie with uh, Bruce yeah, Willis. Quite and a bit, yeah. total concept that uh, I think eventually will come to fruition. Give it time. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Um, it's uh, it's getting closer and closer to reality. That uh, that film. I thought it was a great first act and super high concept and well-structured. There were some production problems with it where they had to cut the budget in half. Um, And I think that would have really helped with uh, the last two acts of the 88-minute movie. But, uh, shit, I was good in it. So (laughs) (laughs) I got to save the world with uh, Bruce Willis played by Rada Mitchell. So I'm, I'm cool with it. That was a great movie. I enjoyed that one thoroughly. Um, I'm also, glad you liked that. yeah, Elevator. I just checked out Elevator. I had never heard of that I'm one before. Sorry. What? No. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I tip it, I don't get uh, squeamish easily with movies, oh, but that oh. one totally did it. I'm a claustrophobe. Oh yeah. So yeah. one, you know, the idea of a group of people being stuck in an elevator is horrifying. But everything that ensues in the movie, I'm not going to ruin anything, was uh, fantastic. And you were uh, very good yourself, but I highly recommend that to everyone. It's on Netflix, Elevator. Watch it. I, I, I appreciate that. And uh, frankly, reading the script for Elevator, like when I got it, I was like, there's no way I'm spending four weeks in an elevator. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. And by around, you know, page 26 or so, I was reading it, and my, my brother Luke was there next to me, waving to a coyote, which is weird, because we're on the Upper West Side. Uh, <laughs> it was the same coyote. It was incredible. It the was coyote had a deep-fried Twinkie in his mouth, too. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, yeah. I was, I was talking to Luke. I was, he, Luke was like, hey, man, listen, if your instincts are like, you know, don't do this, then I'm like, 
the fifties. It's kind of interesting. Like there's a there's a there's a bomb. There's a bomb on the elevator. Luke is like, oh, it's gonna be a short movie. <laughs> <laughs> and what you do, like, you know, how do you deal with a significant, you know, relatively life-threatening issue like that in a place where you can't move, you know, and suddenly the trust dynamics increase, and oh, and then, and then there's the arms. Oh the arms. my God! Yes, uh, that's that's the I'm one that did it for me. Much. I'm not going to tell too much, but that that part. Hey, you weren't on the set, man. We had to do that <laughs> for two days. Like, oh. I kind of lost it. And uh, and then, you know, feeling up Shirley Knight, boy, that's a that's a treat that no one can give up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, that was not on camera. That was just, you know, that was back at the hotel. Oh, okay, uh, okay. I'm sitting here thinking I missed a part of the movie, but I'm just going to roll with this. Okay. <laughs> I must yeah. have fallen asleep for that part, but perks of the job. <laughs> no. It's in the director's cut. <laughs> seriously though this movie like when it was over i had like restless leg syndrome i could not stop like shaking my leg i was like had to look away several times and that's just not me when it comes to movies so bravo it was i thought it was really I appreciate good it. thank you very much i appreciate it you know uh, what well, comes to mind for me was blue ruin which i thought mm. was phenomenal i want to see that i haven't oh, seen that one yet absolutely worth it and and i recall the I, line that still really sticks with me and it, it was um you're, you're instructing the main character. You're sort of arming him up for this revenge mission, and you tell him, for you, this is personal, and that's how you'll fail. And those words have kind of resonated with me ever since. Yeah. You know, you, you bring that with you to different conflicts and situations, you know, the idea that you've got to distance yourself from what you're doing in order to succeed at it. Yeah. I thought that was really, really cool. Incredible movie. I, I, I truly appreciate uh, you saying that. Um, anyone who is sort of dissects the script and compliments it uh, is a fan of mine because I think the script was uh, truly one of the more original, creative, innovative, um, intelligent takes on an idea that we have seen done before. Oh, it's, a re- it's a revenge film. And again, I saw this with my brother. We, uh, the premiere of Sundance, this is the first time I saw it. My brother... It was like, oh, okay, I see, I, I see where this is going. And 20 minutes into the film, he achieves his goal. And Luke was like, wait a minute, what's, what, what's going to happen now? And things, and that's where the ride truly starts to descend into a blue ruin. Like, things just fall apart. And it's, everything is taken with, everything is handled. The violence is handled with gravity and responsibility. And I think every film should treat violence with that same level of responsibility. It's, you know, if a guy, you know, goes in to, a, to an enemy base camp in North Korea and just starts blowing away people, he, that's not realistic. If there are people that you're after and are after you, like, the, and you get injured, like, that injury takes effect. And you saw what happens. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a, a, non, uh, a, a non-gun-firing weapon that is... <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, the main character sustains an injury from, and you see what happens with that, and and all of the violence is so none of it is pretty, no, and that no. is what happens, you know, like it's 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 awful, and it's, there's no glory, there's no pride, there's no joy in achieving injury sustained on another person, you know, you are you're hurting or killing somebody else, and 
what that does on the psyche, if you survive, is uh, what this film deals with and what it does to you physically deals with. And um, my character, Ben, is um, a former Marine uh, sharpshooter, sniper, who, you know, clearly has, you know, he, he has lost his taste for it. And, you know, he just, he dropped out of the military. He let himself way out of shape. He just completely was burnt and hurt from what he happened and what he saw. And there's that line where, you know, they said, hey, we're, we're making Blair asks, have you ever killed anyone? And I look at him and I say, two, on purpose. And that line is so loaded. You know, what It implies so mean? much. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's the writing. And it's really smart writing. That's what drew me to the script. And the, the level of detail that the uh, director-writer Jeremy Solonier took into consideration when writing this, that's what really drew me to the film. And I'm very proud of that. I mean, my part is only, like, I'm only, you know, I'm in a significant part of the film, but it, it's in the middle. It's a third of the film. I'm in the, the middle part of the film. And my part's important, but the rest of the movie I'm so happy with. And tell you the truth, um, I got a call uh, two years later from Steven Soderbergh. And, uh, yeah, and Steven Soderbergh flat out offered me the second male lead in his upcoming project uh, for HBO. And I said, this sounds like a major role. He said, yes, you are the chief investigator of Sharon Stone's murder. <laughs> this oh, is a wow. huge part. And my second question is, why are you offering this to me? <laughs> um, and it was no audition. It was an offer. And he said, well, I trust What Are you going to do a bad job? I said, no, Mr. Oh, Steven Soderbergh, I am not going to do a bad job. <laughs> no pressure. Right. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. He's like, well, I know you're not. I mean, I had done a small part with him in a film called Side Effects. He said, I knew you from Side Effects. And, uh, you know, you, you, you were definitely proved your, your, your worth there. But um, I just uh, then I just recently saw Blue Ruin. And uh, I said, that's, that's my guy. So I had no clue awesome. when signing up for this film that Steven Soderbergh would be watching it. You don't know who's going to watch it, but right. you, that's why as an actor, like, if you have the option, you do work that you are would be proud of, or you do work that you believe in, if you have that option. And Blue Room was zero money, and I had just told my agent, I'm not going to do any more ultra-modified, low-budget feature films. Do not send them to me. And I didn't hear from them for two weeks. And then they're like, hey, Dad, we got a script we want you to look at. It's this ultra-modified, low-budget feature. Uh, <laughs> what did I tell Thanks you? Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm so glad you're all listening to me over there. All right. But, yeah, but they did me a real solid. They did me a real favor. Because I looked at it and I read it, you know, 19 pages into it. I'm on the Internet, like, looking up what kind of guns that they're talking about. You know, and I'm like, what the... What's a bolt-action M1 Mosin rifle? What is that? Right. Uh, you know, I'm looking that stuff up, and I was totally hooked on it. And because of that, I have my new upcoming project, which I will tell you about as soon as you ask. <laughs> Definitely getting there. You might as well go right for it. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> I segued pretty nicely into that, didn't I? Yeah, Very it's like smooth. you've done this before or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I haven't told anyone about this because I had to sign an NDA. Okay. Um, so... So this is, I, I, can't, I cannot tell you too much about it, 
but what I can tell you, it is called Mosaic, and it is going to be the inaugural project launched for HBO Now, which is HBO's uh, website. And this is their first interactive, we don't have a word for it yet, so I'm going to say project. It's not a miniseries, it's not a film, it's not a TV series. Uh, it is this massive, well, I'm going to say project again, because we really do not have a name for it. Uh, it is a story, as like a shot like a film, sold, told from beginning to end, uh, but the audience can go inside the film and follow characters that they wish to follow. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so... The four or five leads um, actually shot entire feature films. I shot my own feature film. You know, we shot 86 pages right. uh, in, the, in, in the first couple of months of my character, and I'm charged with solving the murder of Sharon Stone. I mean, Sharon Stone's still alive. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's a very heavy she, concept. Yeah, yeah. She looks, she's great. She's fine. She looks awesome. Uh, but she's dead. Uh, and it's solving her murder. And, you know, do I, do I get the right guy? Do I get any? Do I get the right person? Um, and you go into that, and you can follow me, and you can follow other people. And each time you go into the film, you are seeing an entirely different film from different people's perspective. Oh, wow. That that's is like, extraordinary. That's like comic it's books do, you know? They have their main story, and then you can branch mm -hmm. off and read each character's sure. contribution right. to it. Right. Except I don't want to watch Devin anymore. I'm going to watch this person instead. You're right. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I hope you don't say that. But, <laughs> yeah. but absolutely. You can go and follow you know, Garrett Headland and what he does. And when we meet up the next morning and he's got, you know, a black eye and bloody knuckles and I'm saying, you know, what's going on? And he tells me one story about what happened. You can go into the story and see what actually happened. Wow. Um, that's going to be freaking sounds cool. Yeah. Like I can't break Yeah. I think it's genius. I think it's truly genius. And the amount of writing I and mean, the amount of, research and preparation and writing that Ed Solomon, the writer, and Steven Soderbergh went into doing for this is absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I saw their their storylines. Uh, when you walk into their to their their war room in the hotel, like they have this this huge board put up with all these each character has a different color that you're following with pins and it's just this this spider web of characters interweaving with each other and I'm dark purple and I'm trying to follow dark purple but it meets up with blue and it crosses over with orange and, the, and it's amazing that they have all of this lined up and it has to be coordinated specifically so that when I am chasing somebody in my police car we're driving past somebody who's walking down the street <laughs> who may have been coming from something you know very nefarious or not but we see that car, you know, driving around. I'll just be peeling around the corner from her story. But from my story, you see me, I'm in a car chase, you know? Oh, so man. it's life happening. It's life happening documented in a way that I've never seen attempted before on cinema. And I think only Soderbergh could have done it. And he did it. I mean, I'm so proud of what's happening. I mean, he's, he's done a brilliant, 
I would say so. I mean, it's it's allowing, it's pulling the viewer into the movie, and, and rather than just taking that guided tour through a story, you get to go wherever you want through that story. What a That's, huge undertaking that would oh be! Oh my god, yes, massive, incredible, yeah, massive, massive, and the fact that he works so quickly with very little rehearsal uh, and very long takes. Uh, you know, we had 81 pages for my first neck of the journey to do from October to mid-November. So we had about six weeks to shoot 81 pages. And there were other things going on, too. Like, it wasn't just my stuff. So we're talking at least 100, 110 pages shot in six weeks, which is pretty much unheard of. But he was able to do it because he is so... He's such a master of cinema and can tell stories through, through the lens so easily and so decisively and he doesn't even use light and you will see this film it's just the look of it is uh it's haunting it's it's it, it brings you in it's captivating um i've only i only got to see the last couple of days of shooting when because he doesn't let you watch your own stuff and i'm in so much of it that i really was not able to see very much of it but the stuff that i shot i mean that i saw is brilliant and he shows it to you edited and with a soundtrack, for God's sake. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he works that quickly. When you're waiting, when he's waiting for the sun to move because he's not using lighting, uh, then he will sit there and edit the stuff that you just shot this morning. Wow. And he puts on his headphones and he finishes a, a, a scene. He showed me a whole scene that they shot the first day of shooting that night, like the first day of shooting at night, with a soundtrack, an original soundtrack. Wow. That David Holmes had done for him for another movie that he was like, well, you know, I always wanted to use the soundtrack from uh, from the Good German, and we never used it, so uh, we're putting some of it here. And David Holmes gets paid twice, so he's happy. <laughs> I was incredible. like, yes, Stephen, yeah, that's, sure, do that. That's the master at work. Man. Yeah, that's no serious. kidding. Yeah. Absolute control yeah. of the medium. I mean, I, I, yeah. I would imagine it would typically take months to turn around an edited sure. piece with, you And know, to be satisfied with yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, easily. I mean, surrogates with 88 pages, and that was, I mean, of course, that had helicopter chases and robots and stuff. Right. But that was, you know, at least four or five months. And the full script for Mosaic, I think, is rumored to be about 500 pages. Ooh. If you were to watch every storyline. Oh, my. Wow. I suspect I will be, too. Yeah, I yeah. can't imagine I really letting any so. of it slip through. I hope so. That's January of, of 2017. Oh, so wow, getting to go now. Couldn't be more excited. That sounds yeah. like such an amazing concept yeah. to have that kind of talent behind it as well. Yeah. That is yeah. just, it's groundbreaking. I yeah. cannot freaking wait. Now, you said HBO Now. Is that like HBO's answer to Netflix kind of? It's their subscription, yeah. Yeah, like streaming. Well, it is their website. Um, there's HBO Go, which is them on demand. HBO Now is That's their right. website that they have. Uh, it's up and running. Um, and this is their inaugural project. This is the first original uh, piece of material that they're actually going to release as saying, you know, hey, guys come to our site and look what you can do. They're developing technology for this that has never been done before. I mean, people sort of compare it to a choose-your-own-adventure book, but it's, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure. You're not changing the story. Right. You're just deciding. You are kind of, well, the God journalist, so to speak. You are God's journalist. You can, you can see the story being told from 
God's point of view, from any point of view that you choose to. And you can switch to the housemaid. You can switch to Sharon Stone. You can switch to the art dealer. You can switch to the chief of police or the head detective, me. Uh, you, you can you can switch these points of view. The story, you know, certain facts happen. Certain people die. Certain people get arrested. Certain people live. Certain people go free. And those facts happen as in life. You're just able to literally live inside of the story and see who you want to, whose life you want to invest in. That's incredible. So choose yeah. your own perspective. Yeah. That's right. incredible. Choose your own perspective. That's <laughs> and if you go down the purple cave, you'll get eaten by a worm and die. Oh, no. Oh, come on. <laughs> Gets me every time. So is, like, a single episode going to, I imagine, has hours of viewing. So will a single episode episode pretty much represent, like, a season? Or how's that going? Uh, no, well, that's the thing. It's, it's We're not sure how to classify it. You can watch the movie. I mean, the movie will, I mean, you can watch a person's story or several people's stories, and you will have options of who to choose, and, you know, it will take an hour and a half. Uh, you know, it will oh, take a normal movie. Like, and then, But if you want, you can go back and say, well, listen, you know, I followed, uh, I followed the, uh, the art dealer during this scene, but then I saw Garrett Hedlund go running by screaming something at that party on New Year's Eve. Why was he doing that? I want to go back and see that. Right. You know, so... You can go back and see why Garrett Hedlund was running by. Rewind I'll tell the sense of Because time. he was running after me, and I stole his bottle of Merlot. <laughs> That's a good reason to chase somebody. He took my Bloody Mary and Twinkie. <laughs> that sounds freaking what awesome. What an extraordinary idea. Yeah. I cannot yeah. wait for that. In January 2017. Yeah, we're going January to push 2017. The- Push the heck out and of that. Incredible. If you want to know, I mean, I'm not sure if uh, this is still happening, but September 22nd, I have been told, and we've had a lot of problems with these dates so far, um, Masterminds is coming out. And Masterminds is more of my, my old wheelhouse. That is a, an, all, an all-star cast comedy that has had some trouble. Well, the production companies had some trouble trying to release it, but that's because... Um, David running into legal problems, but it is a huge film that eventually is going to save Relativity Media, which is the company that brought it out. Zach Galifianakis, Kristen Wiig, Owen Wilson, Jason Sudeikis, Leslie Jones, Devin Amineffing Retray. This is a <laughs> wow. huge cast. <laughs> wow, huge, yeah. Huge, huge cast. Um, Congrats, man. That's that, awesome. Yeah. Want to look at so it? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promote that a little bit, too. Uh, in fact, there were there were ads for last summer when it was supposed to come out. God damn it! Uh, <laughs> and everybody who saw it was like, "Holy shit! You have to watch this! You have to watch this! When is it coming out? When is it coming out?" And there were some legal problems with it uh, in terms of the, the company, but the movie itself is already and done, and that you can go see too. Hopefully, if it ever comes out. God damn it. <laughs> We're going to have to keep an eye out. I want to see that, too. Definitely. That's how Little Bill and the Beckley Scott started. <laughs> <laughs> and it all comes full circle. 
Yeah. That, well, it, it's all joking aside. That is freaking amazing. It's Groundbreaking yeah. ideas that I cannot cannot wait. wait. I know I've see. said that five or six no. times now, but I cannot yeah. wait to see. Not that. blowing smoke up anyone's ass here. No, we you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thank you heard it here no. first. All right. No, you did actually. Thank you. And I really hope I don't get in too much trouble for breaking any sort of the NDA clause that I had to sign. <laughs> That's non-disclosure agreement for all you people who aren't aware of an NDA. Oh, the the uneducated masses. Basketball <laughs> conference. <laughs> 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 NDA. Right. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, Thanks. One thing I really wanted to ask you about, too, um, you've been in three different uh, roles that have been drawn from the comic books. Uh, Dennis the Menace, you were in Surrogates, and then you played uh, Sheldon McPhee in Agent Carter's uh, first season. Uh, etching your spot in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, are, are you a fan of comic books, and are you a fan of the Marvel Universe? Well, that's really interesting, and good research on you bringing that up. Um, there's actually uh, four R.I.P.D. was also a uh, yeah. comic book as well. Was it Dark really? Horse yeah. comic. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, Dark Horse uh, released in uh, R.I.P.D. Um, I have uh, I was a great fan of comics as a child, and um, my brother, of course, sort of my older brother. He, uh, well, Luke, I've mentioned him to you before. You know, all the right. books that weren't eaten by coyotes, uh, he <laughs> would sort of guide me through. <laughs> he would guide me through this and. Uh, but I I got to learn comics from a five-year-old, like a kid who was five years older than me, which was huge. I mean, massive when you start reading at five years old. You have a 10-year-old telling you what to read and helping you through, you know, the stuff that you don't understand. Because you don't understand the subtleties. Or at least, I mean, there's some great writing. Um, Frank, uh, David Burns and Frank Miller and the guys who did um, the Marvel comics, Alpha Flight and Excalibur, and specifically Mm -hmm. X-Men, that's where we started to get get going. Uh, And I had to really pay attention to the writing. You know, most kids just look at the pictures. And the artwork is incredible. Burns' Burns artwork of Wolverine, you know, he did a a stencil drawing of Wolverine for my brother when we went to see him at um, uh, Funny Books on 94th Street. Broadway, which is no longer there anymore, but he did that drawing in about a minute, minute and a half, and he was known for for drawing, for being the fastest artist in the Marvel bullpen, and to watch him do that, and then talk to us about how Batman was his favorite comic, I mean, I was fascinated. I was like, wait a minute, that's DC, man. He was like, no, he's a real man. He was a real man. He wasn't a mutant. He was a real man who chose to do this, and you know he doesn't have the, the healing factors. He doesn't have the the the, the optic glass that Cyclops Scott Summers, by the way, who's his real name, has. You know he he didn't go into space and was changed into the thing. Ben Grimm, by the way, was his real name. Uh, so, <laughs> like, you know these are all like I don't follow comics anymore. This is all stuff that stayed in my head from when I was a child. And it actually helped me tell stories and helped me realize that storyboarding, you know, how how important storyboarding is, which is something that all films are used now. They, they use that now. And it was, it, it's, it's more primitive comic books, the way that films are made now, right. becoming more advanced. But um, 
I was, yeah, I was very, I was, I was very taken in by uh, comics as a kid. And when I became part of the Marvel Universe, such a such a small satellite character. Uh, next week, I have to go sign uh, playing cards for Sheldon McPhee. I have to sign a thousand cards. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and yeah, it's kind of cool. Like. I, such a non, you know, such a non-essential character is still a part of the universe and still going to be part of somebody's collection. Right. People, people collect this and people follow the stories, and they immerse themselves in the world. And I think the better fleshed out that world is, the more satisfying it is to the people who create it, and absolutely more satisfying to the people who invest their time in it. Right. To the fans, uh, the, the Game of Thrones world. Uh, I'm so happy that I watch things obsessed like way too closely as a film student because I notice little things that are rewarding like Game of Thrones there's a scene where uh, uh, the the Khaleesi's uh, uh, knight uh, is the blonde guy I don't know his name but he picks up her her missing ring uh, in, in a field and he says the Dothraki has her and I noticed that his his, his fingernail bruised and you know it's funny you say that I noticed the same thing you noticed that too. I did. Yeah, it sort of okay. implies, you know, the difficult times this person's been through. The little touches like that that tell such yes. a story. Well, this makes me very excited. This makes it all the more worthwhile that you actually noticed that too. I was thinking, wow, what you know, what a good little touch from the makeup department because this guy was like he was a gladiator. He was a slave gladiator yeah, for yeah. God's sake. He's like punching people with his bare hands with helmets. He's punching <laughs> people with helmets for God's sake. So yeah, he bruised his finger. Now, now this last—it's uh, uh, not a spoiler—but this last episode, last Sunday's episode, um, we see all his fingers are starting to bruise, and that is actually a result of—I don't want to give it away—but the stone flesh disease that he's got. Right, you're starting to see the effects take over. Yeah, yeah. His hands are, because he got bit, it's the hand that he got touched with. So, you know, the little details like that, the bruised fingernail plays six weeks later, or a whole season later, <laughs> or at least in the next season. Little things like that, I think, flesh out a world so well. Absolutely. And I know that comic books did that very uh, essentially. They did that all the time. Because I would see little asterisks at the bottom of a Marvel comic, where he would say, you know, we haven't we haven't seen anything like that since Tokyo, and then there would be a little asterisk next to Tokyo, and at the bottom of the page it would say, "See X Men episode 171," right. where you know where Wolverine goes to Japan, and you know there's some fucked up shit in Tokyo. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but that type of satisfaction for the for the reader, I think, is what great writing is all about. Absolutely, the attention so to I'm detail. Very proud to, yeah, I'm very proud to be a part of the Marvel Universe, in, even in a small aptitude, uh, in my small aptitude, and in all the, uh, all the comic book episodes that I've done. Yeah, that's uh, Comic amazing. book films, excuse me. That's awesome. It's like uh, Star Wars, you know? Every person on screen, no matter how big or small the role is, is etched into the history. It's something yeah. enduring. People yeah. recognize those faces. And will, yeah, always be a part of that universe and give, you know... Inherit these backstories and stuff that never were originally thought up. It's it's awesome. I I appreciate that, and it is. I'm so glad that other people are into appreciating it as well. 
Awesome, I can't man. believe I linked Game of Thrones in with that. How did I? <laughs> <laughs> this episode's you know got everything. Thumbnail too. <laughs> it really does. It's justified. It wasn't thumbnails. The middle finger. Sorry. It was such an extraordinary touch, and, and I remember yeah. having that same thought. Like, wow, you know, the small things like that that tie the story together, that make you think outside of what you've just immediately right. seen. The little things well, left to interpretation that yeah, don't have yeah. to be pushed in your face. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, if you notice, I mean, like, to bring this back to, like, Mosaic was all about that. The details had mm. to be so specific. Why was there a broken wine glass in the living room when we go in? You know, and then you see, you know, two nights earlier, it was the maid who just accidentally, you know, dropped the glass. I'm making that example up, but there are so, like, the, but there are such specific um coordination that, and continuity that had to be in place. Um, the car is parked in a different parking spot outside of the UPS office, uh, outside the FedEx office. And I, I brought that up to Stephen. I said, Stephen, actually, Mr. Soderbergh, sir. But I was like, uh, Stephen, um, you know, the car, when we just did, you know, Jeremy Bob's perspective, the car was in a different spot. He said, yes, it was. I said, why? <laughs> you, you, re you remember it in a different spot. It's all through my memory. Like, I remember oh, the car being in a different spot. Yeah. Yeah. And it was down to that level of detail. Man, this and, strikes me as something that geeks the world over are going to be picking apart for decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, I hope so. I really do. And it's designed specifically for that. It's designed for the people who noticed the bruised middle finger. That like is perfect. Designed for that. I mean, you guys can figure it out. If you can watch it and figure it out, and the way that Ed Solomon uh, designed it, uh, I'm pretty sure nobody, nobody is going to figure out what actually happened the first viewing. Even better. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. When they told, I mean, because also we didn't know. I knew my story. I knew my track. I knew who I was after and who I arrested. When we actually go after it, it's like, am I am I right? Did I get the right guy? Did I get the right girl? I don't want to give too much away, but it's so hard to figure out like what what really is going on that the first run, I don't think anyone will do it. That's going to be a new obsession of mine. I can oh. already feel it. It's going to, it's going to pioneer <laughs> pioneer in a new uh, era of TV. Hopefully, oh, hope so. Replacing the uh, reality. If TV we can move yeah, away from yeah. that and yeah. toward this, then yeah. Oh God, exactly. yes. Oh God, yes. <laughs> Please I let it so. happen. <laughs> well, one other thing uh, I want to touch on here with you, which you would probably see coming a mile away, is Home Alone. Uh, you're never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your portrayal is Buzz McAllister, obviously, but just. What can you tell us about one working with all the great talents? Uh, you know, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, uh, not to mention John Hughes. What was your experience like on the set? And uh, do you have any uh, like standout memories working with these people? I have nothing but standout memories. This is 26 <laughs> years later. Yeah. Um, it was uh, it was a film that became something way bigger than we ever expected, and. You know, it was a $3 million low-budget Christmas family comedy film um, that was made by one of my heroes as a kid. Uh, and it became the third highest-grossing movie of all time. Mm. 
behind Star Wars and E.T. And that was not on anyone's agenda. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't really expect that to happen. Um, Catherine O'Hara is the single nicest, funniest, greatest person uh, with an extreme amount of talent uh, that I've ever worked with. I'm naming her as number one. Uh, um, I can imagine being in the same room with her. She's just amazing. It's tough. It really is tough to imagine. It, it, I'm telling you, it's tough to imagine somebody who who you can who smile you can feel when you're not even facing her. Mm-hmm. You can feel her smile. Um, she is not a bullshitter. I mean, she's genuine completely at all times, yet she is genuinely uh, attentive and compassionate. Um, I was making a, my own like a documentary. I had a giant home movie camera that took VC- VHS tapes, and uh, I would bring it into the, to the makeup trailer every morning, and everyone would go, oh, Devin, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. Please don't do that in Catherine. But <laughs> she actually was okay with it. Um, she gave me advice about acting. Uh, try, try as hard as you can, and don't listen to anyone who says don't give uh, who said, tells you to give up. I still have it on, on, on film, well, on, on cassette, on tape. <laughs> I still have her saying that on tape that I remember to this day. She is truly one of the uh, and, and 100% of the time, like 18-hour film days. She's still positive and cool and collected. Not bubbly and like in your face and annoying, but cool, collected, positive, friendly, and professional, and funny. Fuck you, funny all the time. John Hughes messes with you, which I love. Um, he he, um, this guy had a had a an advanced sense of humor that you don't uh, you don't run into all the time. I mean, obviously he he was a funny writer, but he had an advanced sense of humor as a person that you don't. You, you don't experience, and uh, you know, w- walking down uh, the, the the street to his production studio, getting out of the uh, out of the van with my mother, uh, he's walking down the street and hey, John, how are you? And he looks, he goes, hey, he's walking, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I kind of and I kind of stopped, and I suddenly felt this cold chill, you know, in the pit of my stomach. Started reaching back to my spine, creeping up my spine, and Mom said, "Oh, I don't think he hurt you." <laughs> and then he turns immediately around. He whips around. And says, hey, man, I'm just messing with you. How you doing? <laughs> I'm <the> street, right? <laughs> um, at the time, I was 15. No, I was 16. I was doing Dennis Menace, and I was doing that. So this is my third film for him. So you know, for especially for him to say, "Hey." After doing three films of them, right? You know that that was particularly messed up, and he totally got me. Uh, but to do that in front of my mom, you know, and he was like, "Hi, Mrs. Trey, how are you? You look lovely." I was doing a book report uh, at the time in high school, and I had a copy of Mein Kampf in my hand. Oh wow! Writ- yeah, <laughs> what a book to have in my- hand. <laughs> written by that hilarious. A hilarious Austrian stand-up. Right. What a jokester. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, they gave me an A for Adolf <laughs> uh, for that book report. So I'm walking down the street, literally carrying a copy of Mein Kampf. He says, wait a minute, how old are you, 16? You're, you're reading Mein Kampf? 
When I was 16, I was walking down the street holding my mother's hand with a red balloon tied to my other hand. <laughs> a, hat, a rainbow hat with a propeller. You're reading Hitler. <laughs> Times like, are well, changing. You know, <laughs> I was like, you know, John, you know, learn to know your friends, but know your enemies better. So I decided to read my... Oh, jeez. <laughs> I... He, yeah, he was always um, he was always a cool guy. Like he defined, he was sort of like the pre the pre hipster. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, before it was uh, cool. Yeah, before it was cool. Smarmy, dry, uh, very quick. He always dropped it. Like he always dropped the front with like with kids. Uh, he really he really enjoyed working with us, and and he he changed my life forever. Right. And uh, that's that's uh, just another reason to be pissed off at God. That, that yeah. was horrible to see. Uh, yeah, taking him, him away. What, what was he? Fifty-five. Too 50? young. Entirely yeah. too young. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Joe Pesci very angry. They had to shave his head. Oh uh, really? <laughs> Joe Pesci had had a really thick, gorgeous head of hair. I mean, check out you know Goodfellas and all that. This was the same year as Goodfellas, and. Uh, they shaved his head. He was upset. You know, they were like, he was kind of mad by it. And I had this, like, by the sequel, by 92, I had, uh, you know, this long grunge haircut, you know, long down on my shoulders. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And uh, he had just come out of the makeup trailer with his head shaved. And so he's, he was particularly uh, upset. Doing the, doing the, uh, the hairy uh, muttering. So he's, you know, I guess he's getting into character, walking out of the makeup trailer, and I'm walking in, and he's like, ah, hey, got that long head of hair. I don't know, it looks good. It looks like really cool, punk rock. Think you're going to hold on to that in there? Watch out, kid. <laughs> And I and I walked out with the famous buzz cut. He yes. literally took off, you know, eight inches, nine inches, and he just looks at us. See, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you just touched on something that I can't uh, let get by me here. My my sister and my brother in law are the biggest Home Alone fans. They watch it year round, multiple times a week. And one question they wanted me to ask you was, how do you get your hair? How did you get your hair to stand straight up? Uh, they had a socket uh, by the trailer uh, <laughs> that I would just have to uh, lick my finger and sort of stick it in. After a while, you know, it really gets the heart going. How did they get my hair like that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> they, they gave me a buzz cut and they put a little hairspray in it. Moose. Like, lots how- and lots of moose. <laughs> Well, you know, back then the moose actually would would coagulate and uh, it would sort of clump the hair. We mm-hmm. tried moose with uh, one of the uh, the hair tests one day, but no, just uh, right. I mean, you know, I was <laughs> young and gorgeous and a, a thick hair of like you know thick mane of otter hair. You know, <laughs> otter hair. <laughs> otter hair. I just made the term up. <laughs> I just saw a special on otters. <laughs> on Discovery, and they have this gorgeous, this gorgeous health with really thick hair. And I thought, of, oh, look, it looks kind of like Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I had thick otter hair, and they would just sort of spray it. And um, I mean, it took a lot of, took a lot of work. Linda, the hairstylist, she she worked hard. She 
sure it's hard to make sure that that arrow is perfect all the time. It had to be. It had to be perfect to stick them straight up. With a name like Buzz, it has to yeah. be perfect. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> With a name like Buzz, it has to be good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Jason Hervey, who played Wayne in uh, Wayne Arnold on uh, The Wonder Years, had said that years after he had portrayed, you know, the older bully brother, that people in his day-to-day life, like, he encountered would be rude to him, and he even had a guy in a bar, like, throw a punch at him and give him stitches, just saying, you know, he had an older brother that picked on him, too, and he could relate. Have you ever had anything like that happen, you know, playing Kevin uh, McAllister's older brother? I very much always had things like that happen, but never to end in such a negative way, for God's sake, you have stitches? Yeah, he, uh, he and his wife, I think, were in no, the bar, and no, the guy no, just no. I told mean, The same thing happened with very different results. Mine were have unanimously been positive. Positive bordering on creepy. Um, No, a lot of people uh, I mean, everybody 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 Comes up to me and they're like Hey, you know, I I had an older brother just like you You son of a gun You you, you really hit that on the head Or, hey, I was just like you To my little brother, you son of a gun You really hit that on the head Um, There's There have been countless stories of connection and recognition with this character, Buzz McAllister. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why the movie was so popular. It, it has the archetype of the Donald Trump brother. And <laughs> <laughs> Buzz should be running for president this year. I'm just saying. You get my vote. Uh, thank you. Uh, I wouldn't even give me my vote. Uh, <laughs> But it, it has always been positive. I mean, and it gets to the point of like people being like, I've emulated, you know, everything about your character. And I always say, please don't do that. <laughs> He's not a good person. Um, uh, I've had um, people, I've had impersonators come oh, up really? to me. Uh, yes, I've had people come up to me and be like, hey, you know, people say I look just like you. And I'm like, you're, you're skinnier and shorter and not as good looking as me, but whatever. Um, you don't look like, like me, hey. you troll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they come up to me and say, you know, hey, people say I look just like you. And I say, I am you. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not even legal. Right. <laughs> that's, that's weird. That's weird that you say that. You're still in uh, my fanfare, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I had... My brother once in the 90s came up to me, say, hey, so did you have fun at Dangerfield last night? This is back when Dangerfield Comedy Club was open. I said, what? What are you talking about? I said, I was standing in line at Bank Machine, and uh, this is how long ago it was. He's like, and uh, there was this really hot girl talking to her boyfriend, being like, yeah, I was at Dangerfield last night, and the guy, uh, Buzz from Home Alone, kept on hitting on me. <laughs> I had ne- I've never been to Dangerfield, but sadly, I never will be able to go because I was never in Dangerfield, never close to Dangerfield. I'm like, son of a gun. Someone's ruined it for you. That they're, yeah, guys, like their whole game to hit on girls is saying that they're me. <laughs> wow. Like, cre- that, ain't a good, that ain't a good score, man. <laughs> it creeps you out, but there's a level of uh, flattery that I think you probably take from that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I mean, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse since, you know, since literally the invention of the internet which has been invented since I was quote unquote famous but that has gotten to uh, to a point where 
a lot of people are trolling me online. Um, it's weird. It's strange to me because it's a part of my past, and you know I'm proud of the job, but I certainly am not. Uh, I'm certainly not trying to you know feed off of it like other people are. Right. Hold on one second. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ian's about to walk out on me. Oh, okay. Well, um, we, we'll wrap this up here pretty quick, and I don't want to impose on your guys' day. Um, right. I'm trying to think of other, of other things about the uh, – I mean, nobody's ever thrown a punch at me. Anybody that I've encountered usually has just said, like, like – I mean, I have gotten – people have said, wow, you are such an asshole. And I say, thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> – Hey, that means I was doing my job right. Right, you portrayed it well. That was the idea. Yeah, yeah. Eisenberg played, uh, you know, played little uh, Facebook guy. Uh, I forget his name. Uh, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg. I Zuckerberg, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Jesse Eisenberg played Zuckerberg apparently very accurately, but he was not a, the most likable guy. Right. And that's you know that's you know what you're as an actor you're supposed to do and. Got to be true to the I, character. I was a very good asshole. <laughs> <laughs> when, last year, I think, was the 25th anniversary of Home Alone. Why do you feel this movie has resonated so well with uh, with the world and is still so popular 25 years later? It really hit on all the uh, all the pressure points that, well, specifically Americans, but not even just Americans. I mean, specifically anybody with a family has. It hit the pressure points that anybody with a family has or anybody who wanted a family like that has. It has hit upon a nerve. It was made it was made in the perfect archetype in a way that nobody else uh, had done it quite so successfully, at least at that time period. If John Williams hadn't done the soundtrack, would it have been impossible? If Julio mm. Metcat hadn't shot the film so warm and so cozy and so attractively lit would it have been so successful uh, if Chris Columbus hadn't directed Macaulay in a certain way or hadn't been so smart as to hire such a brilliant actor to play Buzz McAllister would it have been <laughs> arguably the most important decision yes uh, who, what's the argument buddy <laughs> argument <laughs> I guess the, just the well, conditions you know, were right then. It right. sounds like everything uh, just came together. Were absolutely right, and it was. I mean, and it is. If you look at it, a film that could have been shown in 1950 instead of 1990, um, it has this. It has this old-fashioned feel to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, with the subversive, uh, you know, the. the the smarmy kid who's going to outsmart these two bungling burglars. Mm -hmm. By the way, I don't know if Home Alone has ever been described with the word burglars in it without bumbling going right <laughs> yeah. before it. It's a requirement uh, it's, at this point. Yeah. Two uh, uh, breastfeeding burglars. No, that's not the key <laughs> word we want to use. We're getting what there, folks. We're getting there. What word can we use? Uh, bountiful. No. Go <laughs> with bungling. Um, it was. It, I mean, it, it was. It's a. It's a good film for what it set out to achieve. It is almost the perfect film. Absolutely. Is it? I mean, for what it now 
let me be clear, for what it set out to achieve, it, it succeeded in every point. Is it a perfect film? No. But is it the perfect film for what it wanted to be? Yeah. yeah. And people truly feel um, a connection with it. And it's amazing how even the sequel, typically when you put a sequel in a movie that does so well like that, you're, everyone's always let down. And the sequel just delivered as well as mm -hmm. the first one. And they're both, you know, just taken hand in hand. It's it's amazing. I watched the sequel again recently. I was a little disappointed in it, fellas. Really? I hadn't, well, I hadn't seen it in a long time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it is good and it's fun. Maybe I'm just watching it from uh, jaded eyes. <laughs> I remember. I remember John Hughes. Uh, Macaulay Culkin told me. Uh, John Hughes said to him, "He's like, after the movie came out and it was the number one film for three months in a row and grossed a quarter of a million dollars. And this is back in 1992, uh, which was still half as much as the first one, but still a whole lot more than every other movie was." Uh, yeah, was, for sure. Yeah. John Hughes said, "He's like." Wow, Mac, we uh, we made the same movie twice, and people still like it. <laughs> and I guess the sequel is not supposed to, you know, stray too far from the first one. Right. But uh, I'm sorry, I'm being distracted at this moment. You're okay. Uh, uh, but I do feel, you know, I, I, the second one was good, but it was sort of attempting to recreate what had already been done instead of invent a, a new way of uh, you know being left home alone by two awful parents I can see that yeah I didn't <laughs> ever thought of it like that I still enjoy the right. movie immensely but yeah no, you're I absolutely do too right because my, I do too because my part is bigger in it so, <laughs> so I liked it much better right my part is bigger, so hey. <laughs> of course. One one uh, quick thing I wanted to touch with you on before we let you go. I feel horrible. I feel like Anna's probably giving you a death glare by now. Anne uh, is uh, making table art at this moment. She is ripping up pieces of napkin and using my glasses <laughs> and a salt and pepper shaker to make a face on the table. <laughs> and she's taking pictures of it right now. That is how incredibly bored you have made my new friend oh my god tell her she's almost in the clear she's almost you're there. almost in the clear and these guys are each going to send you a check for 32 dollars yes the price but... of the bloody marys that you have spent they're, they're going to be post-dated checks though you have to wait about five years before you can cash you're not, you're not paying the check don't worry i'll pay the check. Okay. But i just i want them to feel badly <laughs> oh, we already feel bad. <laughs> Just uh, one last question, though. You had you had mentioned earlier that uh, you, on the set of Home Alone, had your camcorder out. And I know that uh, not too long ago you had released some footage of uh, yourself... Uh, with Macaulay Culkin and Michael Jackson, and uh, just being a huge Michael Jackson fan, and uh, what a you know great artist he was. What can you say about the man? What was he like? Uh, that was one of the uh, more surreal, greater days of my life when I interviewed Michael Jackson. Right. Um, he uh, he surprised everyone on the set. Mac was the only one that knew that he was on the set, uh, and we were rehearsing. On a Saturday morning, one of, it's supposed to be one of our days off, and they had us come in and rehearse, pardon me, on a Saturday at 7 o'clock in the morning. This is in February in Chicago. Uh, so it was it was cold, and it was dark, um, 
and we were upset. And we had to rehearse the scene of us running out of the house, getting into the two airport vans. Yeah. And there was a very complicated crane shot starting up on top and, you know, coming down. And we run out of the house, and we divide, you know, who goes into the van and which one goes into which van. So it's a very quick scene, but a little bit complicated when trying to coordinate. So I get up. You know, and I walk out of the hotel room and I stop and turn around and walk all the way back. And my mom's yelling at me, saying the elevator's coming. And I run back to the hotel room and grab my video camera for no reason whatsoever. I just thought I might as well bring it just for rehearsal, just to see. Um, and if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have this footage, this unique footage. Right, um, absolutely. When I when I get out of the van, Mac comes squeezing his way through all these people uh, getting out of the van, and he li- and he grabs my wrist. He says, Jeff, 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 come here. You got your camera? You got your camera? I was like, yes, Macaulay, I, I guess. Uh, come here, come here, come here. I want you to meet somebody. And he said it all weird like that. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll meet somebody. <laughs> And uh, he dragged me to the back of one of the airport vans where there's these, like, dudes standing in front of the van in black sunglasses and black trench coats and earplugs in their ear. And in the back of the van is Michael fucking Jackson Hmm. in this great uh, houndsuit trench coat, great fedora, black glasses, and a butterfly Band-Aid on the side of his nose. And... I had no idea what was happening. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. I had no idea what was happening. He extends his hand, and I shake the hand that's supposed to have a white glove on it. I shake Michael Jackson's hand. And he was like, oh, hey, it's really nice to meet you. And I just took a breath and said, yes, Mr. Jackson, it is really nice to meet me. It's so nice to meet me. Boy, is it good to meet me. Right. And I was able to sort of make him laugh or catch him off guard enough where he was able to be uh, himself, be real. Like, once he laughed, he caught himself laughing. She was giggling. Uh, he caught himself sort of giggling and was able, and then suddenly there was, like, there was a break in the persona. And he was asking me about the film and what it was like shooting. And I just blurted out, hey, I got my movie camera with me, and I'm trying to make a little documentary. Do you mind if I ask you and McCauley a couple of questions later on, please, Mr. Jackson? And I didn't realize I'd said it at the time. And he looked over at Mac, and Mac says, I'm going to be in it, too. And Michael said, well, as long as McCauley's in it, then okay, okay, we'll do it later. And it was, I mean, that was just, you know, I'm a 15-year-old kid who hasn't prepared anything at 7 o'clock in the fucking morning. (laughs) I haven't had my amphetamines yet, you know. Of course. (laughs) And and then this happened. And I did this, you know, stupid interview that I hadn't prepared any questions for, but I, I kept on making him laugh. And he liked me, and I did nothing with it. Uh, a lot of people asked me for that tape for a long time, but it wasn't until he died uh, and Entertainment Tonight reached out to me saying, there's rumor that you have an interview 
uh, would you be interested in sharing it with the world? And the way that they phrased it, you know, because I didn't want to profit from the man's death in any way. Right. I wanted to show a side of him that nobody had seen, or at least, you know, maybe a couple of dozen people had seen. And I, I did, and I, and I wanted to show him as a relaxed person laughing with me and, and my friend, Mac, and a couple other cast members, and like him actually going out and volunteering, saying something. I mean, he never did interviews. Right. Ever. Ever. And he's doing an interview with Devin Rattray. That's <laughs> awesome. And j- trying to jump up into the camera. <laughs> <laughs> and he's volunteering things, saying, I do want to say Macaulay Tolkien is the greatest child star in the world. And I thought that was a really sweet thing for him to say. Right. Drastically overstated, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was great! What a great cherry on the uh, cupcake that is this interview right there. <laughs> wow! Yeah. That was awesome. Oh, thank you, guys. Well, no, thank you, Devin. This has been beyond fun, and uh, my God. Couldn't I've, have had a better time. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Thank you so much for uh, all the insight and just spending some time with us. And thank Anna for being so patient. And they would like to thank you for being, for your patience. And, and, <laughs> and wake up. And wake up, please. I'd like to... Oh, forget it. <laughs> it's worth hey, a try. Too many Bloody Marys, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's our turn now to go get some Bloody Marys, right? I think Good it idea. is, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and I really some Twinkies. All right. I really appreciate your time, and uh, and I do like your show. And your and the waitress loves your show as well. Oh, hey, perfect. you know nice. what? It's to be expected, yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know? Always good to meet a fan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Devin, thanks so much, and uh, have a wonderful day, man. All right. I appreciate it, and it was all my pleasure. You guys enjoy the rest of your Bloody Mary Sunday. <laughs> oh, that's the name of the interview, Bloody Mary Sunday. Oh, oh there, there we, we go. go. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what it'll be. It's going on the episode now. <laughs> I'm no writing it down. It's going on the episode now. Right. I'm writing it down. <laughs> thanks so much, man. <laughs> My pleasure, guys. All right, everyone. And that was our interview with Devin Rattray. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we yeah, did. Uh, and again, my God, what a lot of fun. I wish we could have been great. there like drinking Bloody Mary. Know, seriously. Right? I just don't think uh, Anna probably would have liked that too much. Probably. <laughs> I don't like tomato juice, but I might have then. Right. Well, you, you got to be cool, right? You don't want right. to be the only guy at the table not drinking a Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll have a Shirley This Temple, interview please. was concluded, gentlemen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, one thing that uh, we didn't get to talk about that I really wanted to mention in, in the interview was uh, a movie that uh, Devin did, an independent movie called Courting Condi, where he sets out on this uh, voyage to win the heart of Condoleezza Rice. And it's kind of like a, I think it's been described as like a comedy, tragic documentary kind of thing, but it's... Three great tastes that taste great There you go, there you go. I myself uh, rented it on Amazon, so it's very accessible to people. I strongly advise... Uh, watching it it was very funny but um also there's a soundtrack to it devin mentioned earlier in the interview he's a musician well he did the soundtrack for it and the uh, title song off of it invisible which i'm going to have playing behind the audio you're hearing right now uh is on that soundtrack i thought it was a pretty fun song hopefully you guys feel the same uh but yeah you can find uh, devin on twitter at retray underscore devin and on instagram at devin retray 
And you can find us on Twitter at CandarePod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. Uh, check out our uh, website. Jack will tell you all about here. CandarePodcast.com, where you can see show highlights, guest info, listen to the show, follow us on our social media, visit the Hall of Heroes, see the Wall of Justice, check out our videos on our, from our YouTube page. And if you'd like to be a guest and showcase your work, send us an email on our contacts page. There you have it. We really hope everyone uh, really enjoyed this episode and had a uh, wonderful 4th of July weekend or is having a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Uh, play it safe out there, people, and have some fun. No drinking or driving. Yeah, don't do that stuff. Come on. Have Come on. Sense. Come on. If you don't kill yourself, you could kill someone else, right? Right. There's checkpoints. Right. <laughs> they'll, they'll get you, man. <laughs> There's no getting away from it, man. <laughs> you think it's cool. It's not cool. <laughs> All right. But until next week, I am Jeremy Colley. Jack Doherty. Jake Runyon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Drink daddy's cough syrup. This is where he keeps the good stuff. You don't need drugs to get high. Talk! You just need the Can Dare podcast. That's good advice. Now we know. And no one is half the battle. Just one question. What are you doing outside the window? <laughs> Tell your mama to call me. G.I. Joe! I thought this was the New York Times. Listen, I got to go on the cyclone, okay, man? We get that a lot. A lot of people got to ride the cyclone when they hear about the podcast. (laughs) Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on.